0: Thank you, Tara. So as we pray this morning that God will indeed speak, we'll hear the words of Jesus and listen to them and put them into practice. Um, let that be our prayer as we open this beginning of Exodus this morning, the second book of the Bible. Um, we begin this new series. And Exodus is, is a remarkable book. It's, it's a very popular book, actually, in popular culture. So it's a very grand drama. Um, It's a story of people freed from slavery through terrifying plagues and dramatic Red Sea crossings. And many films will be made of exodus. This is Charlton Heston, 1956, The Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt, more recently, but many more. Uh, You've got Moses, this charismatic figure speaking up to uh, to King Pharaoh. You've got the Israelites being led uh, in the night from Egypt through the Red Sea the Egyptians being drowned there. You've got Moses up Mount Sinai bringing the Ten Commandments down, but finding Israel, cavorting around the golden calf and smashing him on the ground. It's very dramatic stuff, isn't it? It is the stuff of films. Epic story of slavery and deliverance. It's inspired political movements today as well. So the setup of the state of Israel in 1947. Exodus was a driving scripture for that. Uh, Martin Luther King famously used Exodus and Moses in a speech. He said, I've been to the mountaintop, I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. That's Exodus imagery. Uh, many saw Nelson Mandela as a kind of a Moses figure, leading black South Africans out of white oppression back in the 1980s and 90s. But the book of Exodus is also Unpopular in some people's minds in the world of, of philosophy and theology. So, church people, from a critical perspective, they don't like the morality of Exodus with its principles like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Atheists like Richard Dawkins accuse God in Exodus of being immoral, of being morbidly jealous, of desperately needing the love of his people. And not like it when they turn to other gods instead. So Exodus is, above all else, a, a historical story of deliverance. Uh, it's, it's Israel who started slaves in Egypt, but who then, following that red line on the map there, travel through the Red Sea to freedom in the desert first of all and actually Exodus finishes with them still in the desert at Mount Sinai they haven't really got very far actually uh, the right hand side there and later books, Numbers the journey continues towards the promised land Deuteronomy and so on but actually it's a historical story it's a great story for us though because it's about deliverance it's a picture of the gospel for us crossing the Red Sea huge Bible theme of being rescued from our enemies the Passover event, which we will hear in a few weeks' time, is a wonderful picture in the New Testament of Jesus and his sacrifice. But even so, deliverance is not really the big theme of this book. The big theme to watch out for is God himself. Exodus, possibly more than any other Old Testament book, is foundational in showing us What God is like. Who is this God that calls Moses, that brings his people from slavery, that gives them commandments that they might know how to relate to him, that tells them how to build a tabernacle that he might live with them? Who is this God? And the verses that in many ways dominate the image of God in the Old Testament are in Exodus 34. I've put them on the screen there for you. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Because God in this book is revealed often as a burning fire, a God who's, who's burning with passion for his people, who's not only loving but holy, a God of fire. That's our image as well, of course, on the screen there. And in this verse, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, full of compassion, a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's the holy, zealous God that Exodus shows us. On the one hand, um, goes to extreme lengths to forgive our sins, wonderfully compassionate, but also pure and holy, and not about to ignore sins either. Merciful and holy, loving us so much that he will not share that love with anyone else. So, Exodus 1, today's story, begins with Israel as slaves in Egypt. And two things we're going to see about God's people here. First thing is this. God's people here are ruthlessly oppressed. Let's read down to verse 14. Exodus continues the story of Genesis. Jacob's family, the descendants of Abraham. It began with the creation, actually, of Adam and Eve. Back in Genesis 1, and the promise, the command to go forth and be fruitful and multiply. The covenant promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12 expands that, saying, Abraham, you will have many descendants, sand on the seashore, and I'll give you a place, a home, a land of your own, and I will bless you. And those promises began to come true. Israel's people have multiplied to uh, 12 sons of Jacob, and then, as we saw in Exodus 1, 70 of them that went down to Egypt. And they're in Egypt because Jacob's son Joseph became advisor, almost right-hand person, to Pharaoh centuries earlier, and his brothers came to join them when famine hit the land of Canaan. And here they are still in Egypt, 400 years have passed, Joseph is long dead, as the writer of Exodus tells us, and a new chapter for Israel is beginning. And you see, the problem is, the land that they live in is the wrong one. They've been promised the land of Canaan, and they're in Egypt. That's going to be a big issue, a big problem. But the promise is unfolding in one big way. Verse 7. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and multiplied greatly, They are increasing in number, so the land's full of them. The land is literally, it's teeming, uh, almost like insects, team. Israelites are everywhere. So it's ironic. Back in Genesis, the problem was too little fertility. Sarah had trouble having children, so did Rachel and so on. In Exodus, in a way, the problem is too much fertility. Because Pharaoh doesn't like all these baby Israelites. He comes to the throne, verse 8... Um, he doesn't know anything about Joseph, how he'd helped Pharaoh. He's none too pleased to see all these Israelite minibuses going around and uh, Israelite nursery schools full of children. He says the Israelites are too numerous, verse 9, and if we're invaded by foreigners, they may join in. And we'll be defeated and they'll leg it and we'll lose them as our employees, workers, slaves. Very interesting, isn't it? Attitude to foreigners in our country, um, as an aside there. So verse 10, he says, here's the solution. We make them work harder. We make them slaves, so they are too tired to have all these children. So slave masters are put over them, and the Israelites are made to build store cities for Pharaoh." And what Pharaoh's actually doing here, the real sinister thing is, by making them slaves, he's claiming ownership of the Israelites. And that's a dangerous thing in the Bible, because in the Bible, God's people belong to God, not to other nations or rulers. Pharaoh says, make them serve me. But in a few chapters, the Lord will be saying to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. And there's a cosmic struggle, isn't there, going on here for the, you might say, the ownership, the loyalty of God's people. Will it be Pharaoh? Will it be the Lord that owns them, that they serve? And, of course, that's the struggle that still goes on today. All through history, God's people have been in the struggle between uh, God being God's people, but actually often in our hearts being owned by evil, by sin, by the pressures, the temptations of the world. So in verse 12, phase one, population control by forced labor backfires. The more, the writer says, they are oppressed, the more they multiply. And so phase two follows, verse 13. Uh, Ruthless labor now is, is put upon them on the building sites and the farms of Egypt. And these are very dark days for Israel. These are brutal, brutal conditions they're living under. You see, the maternity walls may be full still, fuller than ever, actually, but in every other way, God seems to have forgotten them. They're in the wrong land, far from Canaan, the promised land, and they don't seem to be blessed, rather forgotten by God. That experience of of dark times, again, that runs right through the Bible, too, and into our own experience today as God's people. Later, Israel will suffer under the corrupt rule of some very bad kings that they had in the Promised Land later uh, and under the invasion of foreign tyrannical nations like Babylon. God's people will always be, in the Bible, in some ways, tempted to be a slave to their sin, not to serve the Lord. Jesus comes as a light to the nations, but, as he says, people prefer the darkness. Uh, Ironically, tragically, we prefer the darkness. Paul says that to live in the power of sin is to be in the darkness. And we need to be set free. And today, the oppressive darkness of Pharaoh is all around us in the alternatives that we have to loving the Lord, to the freedom of serving him. Whether it's uh, atheism, denying the place of God in human life and culture, whether it's technology or whether it's money or just individual freedom, all of these voices that are calling us away from the love of the Lord into their oppressive darkness. And once we realize how brutal any thinking, any culture is when it's opposed to God as Pharaoh is, um, we lose sympathy, don't we, for them. So we shouldn't feel sympathy when later in Exodus we're going to see plagues come upon the Egyptians. Pretty brutal plagues. Because this is a dark, oppressive regime that is oppressing the people that belong to God and whom he loves. We shouldn't compromise today when we face anything that's oppressive and cruel and calls people away from knowing the love of God and living in response to it. Atheism. Um, the idolizing of human freedom, addictions that control us today, we need to confront them head on as enemies of God. We shouldn't be surprised. We should be simply recognizing, unsurprised, that the world's always been this way, from Herod's day and before him Pharaoh's day through to us today. The world's always opposed God. But we should be resilient. We shouldn't give up because Israel in Egypt still had the Lord with them. We should trust as they did in the end that whatever comes our way, however unfulfilled God's promises seem to be sometimes, they are going to come true ultimately. That God will bring freedom. He will bring his kingdom. He will fulfill his promises. We will be before him one day in glory with countless millions of others in the new creation where Jesus reigns. So let's get our Bibles out this week, as Lewis was encouraging us to do. Let's engage with his word, because that's where we learn his promises. That's how we learn to trust them, by reminding ourselves of them. That's how we learn how to put this stuff into practice day by day, even when it's dark. But there is good news. God's people may be Ruthlessly oppressed, but we're also wonderfully helped, even in times of darkness. Wonderfully helped. You see, plan one failed for Pharaoh, the population control thing. Um, so he introduces plan two in verse 15. I think at this stage he's trying to keep what he's doing from being too public. So he says to the midwives, rather chillingly, make sure that you're there. When Hebrew women give birth, and when the baby appears, do a very quick check of the gender. If it's a girl, give her a pink baby grow. If it's a boy, choke him before anyone even knows, and they'll think it's a stillbirth. It's a brutal form of selective genocide, isn't it? Now, I would have expected when Pharaoh commands you to jump that the midwives would have have said, how high, wouldn't you? Powerful man. Uh, Superpower president Pharaoh. But these are not ordinary midwives. And they defy him in verse 17. Instead of choking each boy that's born, they cherish him. They let him live. And Pharaoh's out one day and he's looking around his cities and towns and seeing how the building's going. And he keeps seeing... Hebrew women going by pushing prams with boys in them. And he thinks something's not right here. He calls the Hebrew midwives in to give account, and they have a very clever reply, worthy of call the midwife. They say, We hear there's a delivery on the way, we jump on our bikes, we get there as fast as we can, Pharaoh, honest we do. But the Hebrew women are different, they give birth more forcibly, more vigorously than Egyptian women do. And by the time we get there, the boy is out in his mother's arms. It's too late to throttle them surreptitiously. So Pharaoh realizes there he'll get nowhere with these midwives, and he announces his final solution in verse 22. He gives up any pretense of secrecy. He tells all of Egypt, whenever you see a Hebrew baby that's a boy, throw him in the River Nile, drown him. Drown him. Let the girls live, but drown the boys. It's brutal, isn't it? And even that command to let the girls live, we shouldn't think, oh, he's got a bit of compassion there, hasn't he? He's simply letting the girls live. So when they grow up, Egyptian men can take them as their own. Let's not give Pharaoh any credit for compassion, because Exodus doesn't. And then we move forward, don't we, from Exodus to Matthew chapter 2, and we see King Herod, don't we, at the birth of Jesus paranoid that a king of Israel's been born that will take his crown. And he commands, doesn't he, echoing the actions of Pharaoh, that every Hebrew boy born must be executed. And the massacre of what we call the innocents takes place. Even God's Messiah, who came to set his people free, is met with blind fear and hate. But this is, all the same, a story of wonderful help. Despite all the opposition, every time Pharaoh tries to crush Israel, she just grows bigger, doesn't she? That's God's unseen hand at work. The story of Exodus, and even more the story of Jesus, fills us with hope that evil will not win. That in the darkness, God is still at work there, helping his people Despite evil. And here is foolish Pharaoh being outwitted by a pair of ordinary midwives because God's on their side. A very small number of f- uh, frail people with God on their side can withstand the worst assaults of the greatest enemy. It's so with Jesus, isn't it? As he hangs there on the cross in darkness, abandoned by his disciples rejected by his own people, forsaken by God. Evil thinks it's won, doesn't it? It's snuffed out the Son of God. But that is actually the greatest moment of his victory, as he dies for our sin, and on Easter morning, is raised. Far from being the end of God's Son, it's his great victory. It's their downfall. You cannot oppose God's promises and expect in the end, to win so we are wonderfully helped we should therefore I think be courageous shouldn't we as Christians we shouldn't be afraid of the darkness, we should look around for the people around us that are the midwives faithfully fearing God despite the evil that oppresses us making bold decisions to do what's right not what the world is telling us We should be those kind of people ourselves. God-fearers, prepared to meet um, the power of politicians, the force of evil and temptation, of materialism, of addiction, with the truth of Christ. We should secondly pray, shouldn't we? If God is wonderfully but often hiddenly at work, that should make us pray, shouldn't it? That he'll be exactly that, working for good. Pray for the hand of God to keep bringing his promises to fruition amongst our people, both now and ultimately in eternity. We should pray, therefore, specifically for conversions. God is here in Exodus, despite all of the oppression, multiplying his people. We are in a difficult culture today, a secularizing, in some ways an atheist, and certainly uh, an ambitious consumerist culture where injustice and greed seem to dominate, we may easily feel we should give up. But if we pray, God will keep multiplying us. He'll keep bringing people to life in Christ, to faith in Christ. We'll need more baptism services, more confirmation services. And the evil wonder what on earth is going on. So pray for conversions. Pray for those five, if you're a regular here. Pray for the five people that you pray for that Jesus will show himself to them this year. Invite one of them to the Discover course coming up because God has used these courses over the years to open people's eyes, to bring people to new birth in his kingdom. So we pray for more Christians. Pray for yourself. Can you pray for yourself this year that your life may be holy and God-fearing, that you will be, in some way, a faithful Israelite. You and I, we're not Moses. We're not called to be the great prophet, the symbol of Jesus, pointing to one that leads his people to freedom, but we are called to be Israelites. That in the darkness of human experience, and for some it may be a particularly dark season at the moment, we will not give up. Pray that you and I will be resilient in our faith this year we'll keep turning up on sunday we'll keep opening our bible each day we'll keep encouraging each other as we see each other with what god is doing with how he hasn't given up and how his promises will one day come true so pray for conversions pray for yourself but lastly let's pray for our church this year it's a really good thing it's a vital thing for us to pray for our church for the brothers and sisters in Christ that we are together. As we start 2019, will we pray, could we pray that we will all grow as followers of Jesus this year? What a simple but a great prayer that we may bear fruit for him, that we may please him in every way, that we may bear witness to him. As we read our Bibles, as we join in in our small groups, as we uh, meet up with each other one-to-one, as we come to our prayer evenings, may we speak the words of Jesus to each other. So that as we hear the words, we're all helped in small ways or sometimes great ways to put them into practice, to build our houses on the rock. So that Christ may join us. That each of us may not just be an individual house in which he lives, but as Paul says, that we may be like a spiritual temple, a house in which God, Christ, lives by his Spirit joined together as living stones this year. May he build for himself a temple, a place where he lives, uniting across our differences of culture, of age, by the one spirit by whom he lives in us. Let's pray for a moment. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that your word is powerful and living and active, that speaks to us today from all of these centuries ago. We thank you that by your spirit you are among us today and you bring your life and light into the darkness of this world. We do pray for those of us that are struggling uh, with a real feeling of tyranny or oppression in spirit in heart or at the hands of others give us resilience and courage may we continue to trust your promises come what may until the day they're fulfilled fully when you come and we pray for your church in this place and in this land that we may experience your hand at work among us in wonderful ways helping us adding to our number, glorifying Christ among us, bringing your kingdom, we pray, now and ultimately fully on the day when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.